trof nas nasses rovniás on shari. Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz along with my co-host Justin Ritchie. We're recording live here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Beautiful snow on the ground and a tremendous amount of sunlight shining down from the heavens. We definitely had a white Christmas with lots of ice and snow. I think it was about uh, 20 centimeters of snow that accumulated. Sorry, I'm south of the border now. It's about 8 inches. Sorry, I'm just getting used to the metric system. It's so convenient. I think it's about 3 inches that we had, but 8 inches sounds exciting. Oh, well, where I was at in central North Carolina, when the snow came down, it was it was about 8, eight inches. I wish we had yeah. 8. That would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Very good time. So what have you been up to in North Carolina? Visiting family, visiting friends, taking a break from the pressures and responsibility of grad school, visiting my podcast co-hosts. You know, it's been a good time. Yeah, things here for me have been getting ramping up and getting ready for some jobs, hopefully in the next year. You'll find out very soon about a few <laughs> possible things. I will. I'll find out soon. And in the meantime, we've been doing some great interviews with all kinds of people. You want to tell us a little bit about it? We've got quite a few excellent interviews lined up in the new year, thinking about starting a book club where we can read through some of the authors that we're going to talk to, uh, read through their works, and become familiar with the source material before we actually go and talk to them. Maybe even have people from around the world, wherever you're listening to the podcast, call in and have a bit of a book discussion. So that's exciting. And today we have an interview with Helena Norberg-Hodge. We dialed in to her when she was in Sydney. Live from Australia. We dialed in to her live in Australia. And despite the time difference, I think it was 7 p.m. on a Sunday here on the East Coast, and it was 11 a.m. the next day on a Monday for her. The audio quality sounded pretty great, aside from the crickets that we heard in the background. She's out in the sticks, so you can't really do much about that, I suppose. I I think they call it out in the bush there. That's right, out in the bush. Yeah, but aside from the crickets, we had an excellent interview with Helena, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to playing it for you. So we spoke with Helena about her upcoming film, The Economics of Happiness. Her previous work has focused on the Ladakh region in northern India, which has a lot in common with Tibet, and she was there when the area was opened up to globalization and she saw the effects that had on the community and now she's taken a lot of those insights that she produced in her previous documentary and interplayed all of the environmental and psychological impacts of globalization and economic growth and has put it into her new film that's coming out and she'll start traveling the world in January putting the film out and going to communities and holding screenings. This lady speaks seven languages. She is incredibly linguistically talented, 
and it has made me re-examine my own very poor speaking skills. Just listening to her speak inspired me to speak better. It's hard to compare yourself to a lady who speaks seven languages when you're a silly American who only speaks <laughs> one and a half. What's the half? Gibberish. <laughs> I feel like I mostly end up speaking that half language. Anyway, listen to the interview and we'll catch you on the other side. about her upcoming film, The Economics of Happiness. Helena, you're the founder and director of the International Society for Ecology and Culture, the author of Ancient Futures, Learning from Latica, and co-author of Bringing the Food Economy Home. Your articles have appeared in numerous journals like uh, The Ecologist, Resurgence, and Yes Magazine. Having studied around Europe and the U.S. while becoming fluent in seven languages, you've studied with Noam Chomsky and lived with numerous cultures at varying degrees of industrialization. So is there anything that I can change or add to your bio? No, not really. No, I think that sounds good. Just out of curiosity, what seven languages are those? They're basically many Europeans, yeah. Swedish, English, German, French, Italian, Spanish, and Ladakhi. Which language is your most comfortable? English. I, I chose English to be my main language because at one point I got a bit worried that I was... Uh, and I was studying in Germany, and my German was uh, stronger than Swedish and English. And so English is my strongest, I would say. Uh, so let's start out by talking about uh, your educational experiences and how they prepared you to make a film like The Economics of Happiness. And then uh, maybe talk a little bit about the content of the film. Well, I would say probably key in my educational experience in terms of formal education was learning lots of languages and having an ability not only to pick up a language, but I think to see the world through different cultural lenses. When I got the opportunity to go out to this part of Tibet called Ladakh in 1975, I was going out as a linguist because it was a completely unknown territory, having been sealed off from the outside world for a whole generation, from the 1940s until the 1970s. It was sealed off from the outside world. Uh, so they wanted someone who could pick up a bit of the language to facilitate the making of the film. And because I had that ability, I think I, I was able at a very crucial time to learn to speak the language fluently and immerse myself in that culture very quickly. And that then gave me a very different perspective on the world and in particular on the Western economy that started rushing into Ladakh, transforming life there. And yeah, so that, that was, I would say, the main ingredient in my formal education. Part of learning all those languages had also been informal experiential education. I had lived in many different countries and become fascinated by cultural differences and the way that they affect, among other things, the way they affect happiness. <laughs> There were some places that where I would say clearly there was less violence and people were generally more content than in other places. And in Ladakh, 
that was an extreme situation of people who were, without any doubt, the most joyful, vital, energetic people I had ever encountered anywhere in the world. One of the key things I wanted to ask there is, are you from Australia originally or... Oh, I'm Swedish originally. Okay. I'm ma ma mostly Swedish. Yeah. Okay. How did you start out in deciding on your formal university education experience? And then how did that pull you into Ladakh? Well, I actually was interested in, in psychology and in art history. And that's what I studied at first. But partly because of my family background where I had my father was half English, half Swedish. My mother was of Swedish, half German. So I had family in, in those three countries and I ended up studying in those three countries. So that already opened me up to an interest in different cultures and understanding different languages, different worldviews and cultures. So that was really what then led at university to my ending up specializing in linguistics. But in a way that was less uh, significant than, than this more informal interest in languages and cultures. And so that's what led me to Ladakh. Then once you were there, you had an opportunity to see what it was like for a relatively, I guess you could say, pristine region. Is it fair to say that? Yes, you could say that. And I mean, pristine, you know, what do we mean by that? I've come to understand that what was particularly unusual about Ladakh was that they hadn't been colonized colonizers had moved through very quickly, but it was a, a large area about the size of Austria of small villages, almost like islands, you know, spread out on, on the Tibetan plateau. And they had really been bypassed by the colonial era as well as the modern era. So I had the huge privilege and to a great extent also the burden to come to know people who had developed and evolved, constantly changing. And there had been Muslim invasions at earlier stages. There had been changes going on for centuries. But essentially, people had developed according to their own ways and above all outside of the influence of western colonialism and development and that is i i discover as i go around the world um and i do so you know in part because my book ancient futures and a film we made by the same title have been translated now into almost 50 languages we've lost track of some of the um, earlier ones that were some tribal languages, but it's about 50 languages. And, you know, so I've been to visit Maasai leaders and, you know, Mongolia and in Laos and Burma, it's been translated. And what I've found is that it is extremely rare to find people who were not either colonized, you know, sometimes earlier by Christian missionaries or later on economically enslaved, you know, literally as slaves, or later on in the development era enslaved through debt. So it's very, very unusual to have a situation like that where people with very, very sparse resources, because those resources were being handled by themselves for their own needs rather than the needs of distant business people, they had been able to establish an incredibly high standard of living. You know, this is relative to the sort of poverty you see in, in much of the third world. 
was quite remarkable to find people, you know, who carry their own names, you know, not, not Christian names, who have an architecture that had developed in this particular environment, you know, completely adapted to it, built of local materials, you know, large spacious houses that were, you know, almost palatial. And, you know, I saw absolutely no signs of hunger. I was told again and again and again by people that they had enough to eat and drink. Um, you know, there's an expression, zabos, tungbos, and most striking of all, as I said before, was this incredible joie de vivre, you know, incredible joy and vitality. Because language is so crucial to culture, does having a background in languages give you a unique perspective on the cultural narratives of the cultures that you study in and in your life? And maybe take that a step further is do you identify with one of these cultural perspectives more than the others? Well, <laughs> that's interesting. I, to some extent, I, I feel like I, I was able to view the world through sort of Ladakhi lenses. Within the industrialized Western world, I had lived in, in Sweden, in France, in Germany, Austria, England, the U.S., and I had spent time, and especially later now, as I speak now, I lived for over a decade in Spain as well, and I've had you know, long periods in Italy, and I think I mentioned the U.S. as well, long periods there. And out of those Western industrialized countries, there are some that I identify with more. But, you know, in the sort of modern Western world, we have this ability to move around and change and shift. And so I, I guess I like some aspects of some cultures better than others. But I don't think there is one culture that I identify, you know, wholly more with than another of those European cultures probably a bit more with Northern Europe than Southern Europe. And yeah, I suppose maybe more than anything, I'm Northern European. It was cold and we were out of wandering, wondering what we find and wondering where we'd be. We were walking on a roadside, hillside, east, a star we had to see. And we're back with Helena Norberg-Hodge and her movie, The Economics of Happiness. How did your experiences in Ladakh then inform your worldview and prepare you to start developing the economics of happiness? Yeah, well, what happened is that I, I came in touch with these people who really had a remarkably high standard of living. Unemployment, you know, as we know it, had simply never existed. Pollution, as we know it, didn't exist. And many of the illnesses we have were not there. You know, it's very hard to say this in some absolute way. I did have a doctor come out over several years and do research, you know, into cancer and so on and didn't find any evidence of it in the villages. Now there is definitely cancer and perhaps there was some before, but there is no doubt in anybody's mind there that it is something that has increased dramatically with modernity. Very clear and very striking and easier to to sort of get verification on is also that things like suicide was something that would happen in a generation. And now there is one a month. So there were these very, very striking changes that happened very rapidly because Ladakh 
as I said, had been sealed off for political reasons. So when it was thrown open to the modern world, you were talking about, you know, a highly speeded up culture and media advertising and coming in quite rapidly, tourism. And one of the more striking things that happened relatively rapidly was a destruction of the local economy, particularly of farming, but actually every aspect of the local economy was dismantled because everything from the building of houses to the making of their own clothing to the making of their food and their home-brewed beer and so on was suddenly and rapidly marginalized. Some of it even made illegal, uh, but above all, what happened is that economically subsidized food from the outside destroyed the market for local farmers. And so when I saw, you know, butter that had traveled for days across the high Himalayas, brought up in these diesel spewing pollution, polluting trucks, selling for half the price of local butter in the local market, I very rapidly became aware of the way in which our governments worldwide are subsidizing transport, fossil fuels, and trade, and in the process, aiding the giant traders, um, which are now mainly multinational corporations, to the detriment of millions of smaller businesses and local economies. So this was an issue, you know, that I was made aware of very rapidly and, and you know, sort of in your face. Another thing that happened is that because of the destruction of the local economy, by centralizing everything, almost everything in the capital to start with, so that's where a diesel generator, again subsidized, was placed. That's where the modern economy started happening. And that's where the jobs were. So suddenly this whole process pulled people away from the villages and away from agriculture and their local methods of, of providing for themselves into a system where suddenly there was unemployment, very, very intense competition for a few jobs. And so within a decade, that led to conflict between Buddhists and Muslims because the Buddhists felt that the Muslim-dominated government was favoring the Muslims. I also worked in Bhutan in the same period, where the almost identical processes were taking place, was suddenly thrown open, and the same, basically the same pattern. And there, there was a Buddhist government, and the Hindus felt marginalized. In both cases, you'd had generations of people living side by side without ever engaging in group conflict. So I was forced to see the link between local ethnic friction, the rise of fundamentalism, and even violence. I mean, they were killing each other, Buddhists and Muslims in Ladakh, Hindus and Buddhists in Bhutan. So I became passionate about trying to raise awareness in the West about the need to decentralize economic development, the need to immediately halt this destruction of local economies, which is not at all difficult to imagine, a very different development path, economic growth direction that would strengthen local economies by using decentralized renewable energy instead of centralizing fossil fuels and encouraging the import and export of identical products. And so I, you know, I became alerted to this early on. 
At that time in the early 80s, you know, I found as my eyes got open to this and I go back to my native country of Sweden and I find that Philip Morris is the biggest food company in Sweden and that Swedish businesses are routinely sending potatoes to Italy to be washed and put in plastic bags and then sending them back again. That was, you know, in the in the 70s, 80s. Now we routinely have countries, and it's not countries, it's actually the businesses that are doing this, will be flying fish to from Norway to China to be deboned and flying them back again. Shrimp gets flown from England to be peeled in Thailand back again. You know, apples flown to South Africa to be washed and waxed. And the import and export of almost identical products, milk in, milk out. U.S. imports about uh, 900,000 tons of beef and veal and exports about 900,000 tons of beef and veal annually. It's an incredible waste and the main cause of global warming. And we really need to start talking about this soon. As we're showing in the film, it turns out that the globalizing economy isn't only responsible for global warming, it's responsible for an epidemic of depression and self-dissatisfaction, which is also linked to violence, linked to fear and fundamentalism. And that is because we're breaking down the fabric of community, a sense of identity that forms through relationships with people around you, where you feel connected, cared for, seen, heard. You know, the important message that we're trying to get out is that doing something about global warming in a meaningful way, which is not about you and me changing light bulbs and driving our cars less, it's about really understanding what's going on in the economy and demanding an immediate U-turn in policies that would immediately reduce CO2 emissions in a really meaningful way, that same path would provide for more jobs, more community, and essentially heal so many of the social wounds that we now see today. So you talked a little bit about how corporations and businesses coming into areas like Bhutan and Ladakh had those those places were being opened up forcibly by business. Businesses are made of people, and people see what's happening on the ground when they open these places up. How does that disconnect happen between the violence that's happening when places are opened up, like the way you described, and the profit motive? Where does that disconnect occur? Where does it happen in, along the line? I would say the biggest disconnect is time. I would say that the clarity of these changes is much harder to get in most places in the world because the changes have been going on for several hundred years. What has happened is that the sort of system of large business becoming so dominant started, uh, well, you know, with the enclosures, then the colonialism and slavery of the 1700s, the 1600s, 1700s. And so for almost, you know, some of that started even before. I mean, the sort of, if you like, the corporate raiding, you know, started with also with Christopher Columbus being sent out to gather wealth from the rest of the world. 
So we were talking about, a, you know, essentially a 500-year trajectory. And once you had enslaved people, you know, once you had threatened Native American populations, you know, you were talking about misery, violence, and conflict that grows historically. Uh, for instance, in India, you know, the centralization and the unemployment threats that the British created meant that when they left, when supposedly India was free, they had created such a mess of conflict and, and hatred that you saw, you know, the bloodshed that ensued. Now, if you don't see that bigger picture, and if you haven't seen, you know, what I saw very graphically, then it's very easy to think that this state of conflict, of poverty, is essentially part of the human condition. There has also been, on the part of big business, going back a long time, a very well-funded sort of propaganda machine that tries to convince us that progress, which means constant technological change, more trade, economic growth, improves those problems of violence, of low status of women, of filth and disease. And so, you know, through cleanliness with chemicals, through pharmaceuticals for health, and through the progress of employing people, we are providing a better place, a better society sort of forever on this growth path. I don't blame people in big business for this. I don't think it's, I don't think it's fair, and I don't think it's Actually, we're not going to get very far if we assume that all of this is happening because the people in big business really do see exactly what they're doing and they are just fundamentally nasty people. I think we really have to understand that we're getting today into such a dangerous situation in terms of blindness because now, you know, the typical business person at a high level, very often they feel they have the moral high ground they are more and more convinced that the greenies who want to protect the trees and who want to have nice ecological and local food, well, they are just elitists who really don't care about people. They just care about their own, you know, fancy food because they, you know, the big businesses are the ones who are providing the jobs and without jobs, you know, people would be starving. And they believe that large-scale agriculture is more productive so they feel perfectly comfortable in promoting larger and larger monocultures, longer and longer distance trade. And there is, sadly, at the grassroots, there is very little of an attempt to present a bigger picture analysis, you know, very clearly and building up enough pressure from the, the vast majority of people who are being marginalized by this system. So, uh, yeah, so I don't think it is in your face for most people. I think many activists worldwide have given their lives to trying to make the world a better place. They often buy into many of these myths themselves, so they actually end up, you know, without knowing it, promoting the same system that they're trying to, to change. 
Do you think the most compelling argument your film makes against globalization and for building a local economy is the psychological one? Do you think that's maybe the wedge that your particular approach can drive into just the the globalization movement? I hope so. And yet what I'm hoping even more is that the broad analysis we try to bring, where we try to show in one film that there are environmental social, political, and psychological, and if you like, spiritual reasons why we must change direction. What I'm hoping is that what becomes really compelling is seeing that there isn't this divide between what we need to do to solve global warming. And when I say solve, I'm saying, you know, I'm well aware that we are on a track that means we're almost certainly going to have more unstable weather patterns for quite a while to come, but we could make a rapid turnaround, I believe. But I believe that there the the key ingredient would be that people would be looking, as I say, at this in a more holistic, a more systemic way, so that you can get what we started getting in the the movement that was aware that corporate globalization was so destructive. We actually had deep ecologist and labor unionist linking hands to say no to the WTO. Now, what we didn't have at that point was a clarity that there is another path, there is another direction that is about strengthening local economies that would solve both the environmental and the social problem of unemployment. So there hasn't been a clarity about localization as a systemic alternative What's so exciting and what's so positive and real about localization is that it's an alternative not only to corporate capitalism but also to communism and even socialism because it's about the recognition that human-scale economic units can actually provide for most of our basic needs and that if we were to allow that to happen, we would simultaneously be rebuilding the family and the community structures that are absolutely necessary for happy, healthy children with a strong, positive identity, having been recognized, seen, heard, loved enough to be loving and tolerant and compassionate people. I believe that the the holistic, systemic view is what's so important. And I think what you guys are doing by trying to frame things from this sort of outside Martian, you know, extraterrestrial perspective is an excellent way to encourage that broader systemic analysis. And I think that one of the things coming from that perspective would be the severe psychological impacts of globalization. Can you speak to some of the specifics there? Yeah, again, I've seen it at many different levels. And so in Bhutan and Ladakh, it was really stark that suddenly the role models for children were these distant images in advertising and films later on in television. And suddenly, you know, I saw children who previously before, you know, had been so incredibly yeah, happy and, and chilled out about who they were. You know, there was such a deep self-acceptance, which is a prerequisite for accepting others, for accepting difference. You know, what I'm saying here, most psychologists know and cannot deny, but, you know, there are very few who are putting that together with a bigger picture. And anyway, 
seeing how they suddenly were starting to say that they weren't good enough. I mean, hearing Ladakis, you know, gradually over the years, the young Ladakis telling me that it was better to be taller, to have lighter skin, to have a bigger nose, you know, that we Westerners were somehow more beautiful. And then, you know, very soon, you know, we were also more intelligent and the school books were reinforcing this idea that the West was best and that these traditional cultures were inferior. So this creation of an inferiority complex, which, you know, led to them using a dangerous skin-lightening chemical called Fair and Lovely, which is all over the world where people have darker skin, you know, and then the bleaches for the hair, and you will find contact lenses, blue contact lenses, sold from Thailand, you know, to China, to South America, with a message have the color of eyes you wish you had been born with. So this was very stark. And then when I went back to Sweden, you know, women who had teenage sons were talking about how they could notice the difference in their whole attitude and in violence because American violent television was now allowed in Sweden, which hadn't been allowed before. So this deregulation of the media Many people on the progressive left have, for very good reason, you know, been in favor of it, but they haven't been in a position to see it from a holistic global perspective, to see that actually that serves the needs of giant corporations that are now targeting three-year-old children with the message, if you want to have the love and the connection that you're looking for, because that Again, no psychologist would argue with me on this, that we all need to be loved and nurtured as young children. That's a universal human need, the need to be loved, to be seen, to be recognized as, as who you are. That is essentially a need for connection, for community. And that need is now being perverted into a need to consume because the message to the child is, if you want to have that approval of your peer group, if you want to get them to like you, you know, at a deeper level to love you, you've got to have the latest fashion clothing, you've got to have the latest running shoes, you've got to have the latest toy, you've got to have the latest gadget, the newest car, you know, when you're a teenager. And that path has exactly the opposite effect of what those little children are actually looking for the community, the connection, the love and acceptance is now perverted into a competitive race that leads to separation and alienation. And this is now global. It's having an effect worldwide. So I remember I write about it in Ancient Futures, you know, seeing these six-year-old boys at a bus stop in Sweden, you know, when I, one of the boys was almost in tears because the other boy was telling him, no, no, that wasn't the right label. That's not the right label. And I see again and again parents who are just so in this impossible situation because the child that comes home to them, you know, and wants to be on Facebook, you know, every minute and try to do fancy photos of themselves to show off, the, especially mothers who can sense that this is not the right direction. If they say no, it's like saying to their child, well, you're not going to have community. I'm going to create a Luddite weirdo fundamentalist, you know, drop out, out of you, you're not going to be doing what your other peers are doing, what your friends are doing. 
So this is, for me, you know, this is a plea to people to move beyond the narrow individual analysis, move beyond pointing fingers and saying, oh, you know, you're driving a car, you know, how can you do that if you care about global warming? Oh, you know, you're letting your child on Facebook, you know, you're really, you know, this is not the way we're really going to change things. We can start to make meaningful inroads into change by very consciously turning in our local communities to like-minded people and creating a bit of a bubble of a culture where in our alternative school or in our church group or in our deep ecology reading circle or in our singing circle, wherever we can try to create a different consciousness and a bit of a different culture in our community. But even that is not enough. It's a very, very good first step, though, because it tends to bring far more joy and vitality into our lives anyway, even with all the driving and all the computers and all the speed and pressure, we can bring joy and, and light into our lives by building more community right now. But I'm also asking people to, to recognize, not to be afraid of looking at the bigger picture. The bigger picture is going to end up being more liberating, more empowering than the, the fabric of dominant assumptions that keep people right now both running so fast. I mean, people are working like crazy, harder than ever before. In the name of growth, our economy is shrinking for the vast majority of people on the planet. We are running faster and faster just to pay for the house, just to pay for the health care, the insurance, the education for our children. Let's wake up to that and really focus on economic change in terms of a political demand. Let's move away from the politics of identity, you know, this individual, that individual. Let's see through the fact that every political party right now believes that they have to stand on this growth platform. So until we demand a different platform, we're not going to see a different politics. So that's what I, I'm hoping that you know, people would devote at least 10% of their time to the bigger picture. And, and by concern for policy change, I'm arguing the strategic thing is to talk policy among ourselves. For the moment, let's not spend our time writing letters to Congress, members of Congress, or members of parliament in the UK. Let's send those letters to each other. Let's build up a movement very rapidly. Let's build up a movement for economic literacy, for economic change. And then we will have a platform and a, you know, a base from which we can insist on a different leadership. back with Helena Norberg-Hodge and her film, The Economics of Happiness. So would you say instead of having conversations about consumer products or consumer services, we should have meaningful conversations about the state of the world and the holistic picture? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because what's happened, you see, you know, what I've experienced having been 
involved with this and been in touch with virtually every environmental leader, social activist leaders, you know, from, you know, Greenpeace, founder of the Friends of the Earth was a friend. And I've, you know, I've known the green parliamentarians in Europe. I've been, I've also met with uh, political leaders and ministers in many different countries. You know, I used to give talks at the World Bank and once I did a seminar at the IMF, that's the only time. But but anyway, what I've seen is this frightening, frightening narrowing down of vision and uh, a management of ideas that is coming because of a structural conspiracy. We have a structural de facto conspiracy of big money paying for big science, big media, school books, uh, every avenue of information about the state of the world is being polluted by the profit motive of giants. And those giants, remember, again, they are ordinary people like you and me, many of them really good people, but they're inside a frame where the assumption is that growth is good, they're often so narrowly focused on, you know, whether it be their marketing task or as a scientist producing a new toxic chemical for some, you know, new cosmetic product or whatever it might be. The narrow focus allows for the cruelty to animals and basically the cruelty to people that's going on. So we, we're faced with this dumbing down, which one of the characteristics of the many myths that are being promoted is this business that we're going to save the world through our consumer habits. And that, of course, first of all, it guarantees that only rich people can afford to vote, really, because if you're impoverished, you know, you're, you're going to be going to the, you know, big Walmart in your area. You're, you know, you're going to be basically have no, no vote. It's a, it's a very frightening tendency to forget about the fact that we are also citizens. We are also very important community members. And when we start taking that first step towards trying to do things at the community level, we'll start seeing that we do have some power and there are things we can do collectively that are far more systemic, that are far more fun and far, far more effective than what we're going to do by changing our individual consumer habits. Maybe I'll give an example of what I mean there, because I would like to encourage people wherever possible to buy local organic food if they can and if they can afford it. But, you know, my message has always been, and by the way, I do want to say, you know, my organization in many parts of the world, from Los Angeles to San Francisco to London to Sevilla, Spain, to Jakarta, we actually were the first organization to promote the concept of local food. And there were perhaps, you know, individual initiatives where things had happened, but there wasn't a sense that this is something vital and necessary. So we helped to give, you know, start the first farmer's market in in the UK, and then within four years there were several hundred new farmer's markets and similarly in the US, we were, yeah, we helped to get the ball rolling first. But what I've always said about that is this is not about saying to people, you know, you as an individual atomized consumer, buy local food, eat local food. That's not the message. In many parts of the world, you'd be eating tobacco and cotton. 
there isn't the local food available. What I'm trying to say is that these local food initiatives have come about because people have got together, often as a group of consumers, linking up with farmers, starting box skins, going through the process of getting a farmer's market started. I've gone through that many times in many parts of the world, and it requires activism. You know, the local food is not on our doorsteps. And the really positive thing about that is that I get so inspired and excited when I see what's happening because of localization. Because what's happening is that farmers are starting to diversify because of economic pressures. We keep hearing about the market. We need to be talking about markets, plural, because local markets, plural, actually encourage through economic pressure farmers to diversify. It's in their economic interest to do what the land needs, what wildlife needs, what the soil needs, what our health demands. So you're actually creating an economic structure that is totally in harmony with the needs, as I say, of wilderness, of deep ecology, of our physical health, reducing global warming. It is such an exciting win, 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 win. You know, there's sort of, I can, you know, people are concerned about plastic. Well, it's the way to go to reduce the mountains of plastic. People are concerned about, you know, I mean, it's just endless, the multiple benefits. And of course, again, to come back to the psychological, the Studies are now showing, I hope you've heard about this, that when they look at the number of conversations people have when they go shopping in the supermarket compared to the number of conversations in the farmer's market, you know, people have 10 times more conversation with each other and between farmers and consumers. So it's a happier, more joyful, and socially, psychologically healthier experience. And it's, yeah, it's the single most strategic way of reducing global warming would be to support the local food economies worldwide and to help create more and to increase the diversification. So don't think if you have a farmer's market in your area, well, it's done. It isn't, you know, even even in a place like Vermont, probably only 10% of the food would still, you know, be as local as it could be. I just want to also stress that localization as a process is not an absolute, you know, what is local? It's a relative term. It's the clear understanding that because of 500 years of slavery, colonialism, and corporate exploitation, we need this, you know, urgently need a shift in direction towards localizing. But for industrial products, of course, things can be, need to be centralized to to create a certain type of efficiency and therefore you know you're not going to be talking about making industrial products in as decentralized a way as you would grow food provide building materials and uh, you know in terms of clothing as well the fibers and materials and so on can be more more decentralized than industrialized products it's understanding this sort of process from a process-oriented perspective, from a holistic perspective, that localization is, I would say, without any doubt, everywhere in the world, it's a necessary direction. But the extent to which we localize and 
depends on place, depends on culture, depends on, you know, particular needs, and depends on the historical developments until now. So you talk a lot about um, farmer's markets and eating local and keeping your things local. How do you get people to focus on that big picture thinking? And how does your film help develop that conversation for people? Well, I mean, the film does try, you know, in a very ambitious way to look at the environmental, social, as well as psychological and spiritual issues. And so we're covering a lot of territory in just a little over an hour. It's been an incredible task to do this. I I made the mistake also of passionately wanting to have voices from every continent. So not only was the content holistic, but I really wanted to show that worldwide there are people who are speaking out for a need in this direction. We've ended up having to cut so much fabulous footage. We will develop it into additional materials. But that's that's basically, you know, what the film does. And I, I yeah, I just hope that, you know, some of the stuff I'm talking about now, you know, the, the many benefits if you start linking up in community. And so we don't, we don't spell out some of that as much as I would like to, but we have, you know, additional materials and, you know, a website full of links. And, you know, we're seeing this as a, trying to catalyze this campaign for economic change. We, we're definitely seeing that this whole theme of happiness is quite the flavor of the sort of year, I think. So I think in the end, even though we, we spent far longer on the film than we wanted to, I think the timing is quite good. But I do want to warn that I see, you know, from Sarkozy, who is the first head of a government to start addressing this, to now David Cameron in the UK, and even Bernanke, you know, the head of the Federal Reserve Bank, he gave a talk the other day entitled The Economics of Happiness. So it's quite the flavor of the month, and it's definitely, you know, getting co-opted in the sense that these leaders so far are totally blind to the need for decentralization. It's a blindness that is often a bit, I don't think it's often conscious in the sense of being right up front, you know, in the sort of front central part of the lobe of their brain. But I do sense that for many people in power, the idea that we're going to question corporate power and the right of giant multinationals to get even more giant, even bigger. That's something that people really shy away from. As we know, we're all so dependent on these big businesses. That's why I think it's also incredibly important that we don't, you know, demonize the people in those corporations. Because as I say, you know, they, they really believe, many of them believe that they really have the moral high ground. That is their job to grow the economy in order to create more jobs. And the fact is, this path is actually shrinking the job pool worldwide. So the whole system is creating mass unemployment. In India, regularly, you'll have 10,000 people applying for one job. I mean, this is the system that's being foisted on people now. Totally. The next question I had is, do you think that focusing on happiness, we can prevent the world and the environmental situation and the unemployment situation from making people a lot, uh, I would say, unhappy? 
a lot more unhappy uh, as things get worse. Do you think we can head that off, or do you think that things continually have to kind of degrade and people have to start saying, wow, I'm, I'm really unhappy in this economic situation. I need to find an alternative, and then they'll turn to localization? <sighs> I'm very nervous of that idea that things have to get a lot worse first. I think things are getting very, very bad very quickly. People, again, from a global point of view, the main thing I think is the, the big important thing is that people really have to understand that governments of every political color, including in Scandinavia, are just collapsing under the pressure of deregulated speculative finance, which is completely linked to deregulated trade in cows, in water, in plastic waste. So I'm hoping that the, the holistic understanding is what will motivate people to do something now. As people get very unhappy and depressed, there is also, for sure, uh, a rise in violence and in, in, in a type of depression that leaves people immobilized and incapable of, do, incapable of doing things. So my conviction is that we have, we have a moment now of, you know, over the next few years, I'm hoping, where we could have a sort of sudden viral marketing and, you know, every other kind of marketing that would get out this bigger picture. Yeah, because I, I don't think that people getting less happy is necessarily going to mobilize them. Some of that's happening too. I mean, I think already now there is more interest in this because people are clearly unhappy, but they're so busy, you know, they're so overworked just trying to pay for the mortgage and so on. So, yeah. On, on the ground example here in the United States, when I go to Walmart, I don't see the suffering and the horrendous conditions of where the products that I'm buying are made. What role do you think that media has in telling the stories of where these, these shiny goods, you know, where they come from? And how do you get people to relate the goods in the store to the, where they, they originated from? Yeah, it's such a good question because I think that's, you know, that's exactly one of the many reasons for the need for decentralization is that when you have shorter chains, you have better knowledge, you have communication that isn't just through the corporation telling you, you know, well, this is a fair trade, you know, a very good product and so on, which is often highly, highly um, manipulated and corrupt. So I think decentralizing is essential for that reason. In the meanwhile, I think the media has a huge role to play. But of course, we know that most of the media that gets seen by the, by the millions and billions is totally linked into this corporate expansion. And so therefore, they resist getting this kind of information out, which is why alternative media is absolutely vital and essential in this process. I had a question um, about E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful. I was wondering if you were familiar with that book and how much it, it's uh, influenced your work. E.F. Schumacher influenced me hugely. I happened to come across that book in Ladakh. And when, you know, in the early years, I had learned to speak the language fluently and I was mainly doing, doing a dictionary of, of Ladakhi language. And so I read that book and that is probably what gave me the audacity, you know, as a woman alone to take the initiative to start an alternative project in Ladakh to demonstrate renewable energy, solar, solar energy as an alternative to the fossil fuels. 
And that led to, we had apparently one of the biggest alternative, you know, technology projects in the world by the mid-80s. And that really, I don't know if I would have had the audacity to do that if I hadn't read Schumacher and seen, you know, he was a man, an economist, you know, was saying exactly what I was seeing. His, his uh, you know, he was so deeply influenced by very similar experiences by being in Burma. And that's what gave him the perspective on the Western world and what made him question the development models. So it was very, very parallel. Later on, unfortunately, I didn't meet him, but I met his family. I worked with his son and daughter-in-law, especially Diana Schumacher, a lot. We were part of an ecological group in Europe. I met his sister in Munich. And again, because I speak all these languages, I was speaking in many parts of the world. And I also was one of the first people to teach at Schumacher College in the UK, and I have been teaching there regularly over the years. Uh, so, yeah, very, very important. And I've worked with economists who have said very similar things to him, but who have now, because of the way that publishing is more and more corporatized, and that means, you see, again, it doesn't mean evil people. It means it's so large-scale, it's so into making big money, and the big blockbusters are seen as being the sort of trash that, you know, just sort of stimulate people um, in a sort of, you know, in, in a way that has, is the opposite of the sort of message that needs to get out. So the, these books are being buried. And again, talking about alternative media, alternative publishing is so important. And it's also why we all need to be now, you know, if we understand that, then we need to be much more actively sharing information and this is why I used to, I coined the sort of expression education as activism uh, a long time ago because I think, we, yeah, we have to be much clearer about the fact that there is a lot of stuff out there, both older writings and films and so on, that need to get out but that are being buried. You don't find them in academia anymore. You don't find them in the dominant media. So we need to get active to get out that and you know, WikiLeaks is a very, very exciting uh, way of sort of showing some of the frightening corruption because of the interface between big government and big business. But unfortunately, you know, it's not helping to get out this bigger picture analysis, which I think um, we, need, we need to get out in an activist way. It's sort of the most important activism, I think, is getting that bigger picture out. I asked about uh, Small is Beautiful just because I, I read that book probably a year and a half ago and it was very inspirational. To me. How did you come across it? You know what? I don't even know originally. I think I just saw it as perhaps a recommendation on my Amazon.com purchases. Really? Yeah, and it was recommended because I bought a book, something about the environment or, or whatever, and so I thought, hey, that, that looks interesting. And then I purchased right. it and read it, and then uh, it was totally just sucked into the, the idea of localization from that point on. Great, great. Yeah. Right. So glad to hear that. And I hope you also know, you know that there was a, a Schumacher Society in both the U.S. and U.K. I've been involved with both of them, and now the one in the U.S. is called the New Economics Institute. Do you know that? No. Uh, we'll definitely have to look them up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, funny thing is that they seem, you know, I feel they've gone a bit away from that localization. At the moment, they're not really, they don't seem to be focusing as much on localization 
as the original founder, the man who started the Schumacher Society in the U.S. And he was a very, very wise person who had also known Schumacher and so on. But unfortunately, he is dead. And now there are others. But it's still very interesting. It's definitely something you should look at. And there is still uh, a Schumacher Society in, in the U.K., and the New Economics Foundation in the UK is also very interesting to look at if you if you have time. All right, that sounds really cool. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, how can people find more out about the, the upcoming film, The Economics of Happiness? Best way would be to go to our website, theeconomicsofhappiness.org. So the economics of happiness is all spelled out, you know, the, uh, you know, and then the e, there are two e's there. And, it's just the economicsofhappiness.org. And we have about 20 launches coming up now in, in U.S., Canada, Europe, and Asia in January and February. So I hope people will, will look at the, at the website. I'm sure they will. We will put a link to your, your new movie on, in our, on our show. Yeah. I think you can tell I can talk endlessly because I also have resisted writing because it's so systemic what I'm dealing with. Yeah, I'd love to. So let me know, too, when you have another opportunity. And, yeah, I'd be very happy to be on again and love what you're doing. Thanks for doing Sure. Is there any kind of core element you want to leave us with? Yes. I guess the thing I would really like to leave people with is don't shy away from the big picture. It will... You will see that it will help to remove a lot of the personal guilt that you're being cornered into accepting it's just terrible what's happening to western consumers they're being made to feel that it is their fault that the world is being destroyed around them and they're being told that this is because of their greed that they just have this enormous appetite an unending appetite and they should just you know be be ashamed of themselves or just go away sort of this is such a false analysis We need to be looking at this trap that's being set for us where our children are being, you know, the deepest human need of all to be loved is being perverted into a need to consume. This targeting billions of dollars going to targeting three and four-year-olds. We need to be looking at how governments are using our taxes to encourage consumerism. So blatantly after the global financial crisis where they wanted to dump money on us and just ask us to go out, consume, 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 please consume. We're being you know, brainwashed into believing that we've got to keep running and consuming in order to keep our jobs. That is a complete myth that running and consuming more is linked to the path where both husband and wife have to work now, where the average American is working more than a month, a year longer than they did about three, four decades ago. We are actually losing our jobs in the process. So once we start seeing that bigger picture, you know, a lot of the guilt goes away. And I hope it will be replaced by a sense of, I want to do something rather than a sense of, Anger. You know, people at first, when they first see this, they can get very angry at big business and at government. That's not going to help us. We need to really, as I said, look at the bigger picture and start getting it out and get on with spreading the word. And what's really nice about the bigger picture, too, is that once you start more consciously helping yourself and your children to reconnect at the local level, 
not just to other people, but to life around you, to the living, natural world around you, you'll see that your own sense of well-being can actually increase right now. So the economics of happiness is right at your doorstep. So that wraps up our intro with Helena. Seth, what did you think? Helena is an amazing speaker, as I told her at the end there. I think she has a very interesting message. It seems that uh, opening up native lands is a theme that corporations have been doing for many years or centuries. What did you think about what she talked about, Justin? What I liked was her message that we need to stop focusing on political organization and we need to start organizing in our communities instead of writing letters to our representatives in the U.S., our congressmen. We need to start writing letters to people who live around us, to people we know, to our family members, our friends, and speak to them about the dire situation the world is in and speak to them about the individual small steps that all of us can band together and do. I mean, it's as simple as going and, and asking for a cup of sugar from your neighbors. You get to know them in the process, you get sugar, and then maybe you bake something that you use that sugar in and go and give that to your neighbor. I mean, it seems like a very almost antiquated and utopian ideal, but it's the only way we can develop some kind of local connection. So what you're saying is I have to be a baker to save the world. Essentially, that's what I'm saying right here. So if there's any bakers listening to this, actually our hope rises and falls with you. Best way to save your community is to learn how to bake bread. So do we have any new episodes coming out in the future, Justin? Definitely. So we have an interview lined up with Jane Brocks, the author of Brilliant. That's a big one. That's a really big one. She wrote about the evolution of artificial light, so we're really excited to interview her. Uh, we're going to talk about all of the hardships everyone faced in a world before electricity and some of the steps that the electrification of America and the rural electrification uh, process engendered on the population. And I think the interesting thing there is a lot of us focus on the negative aspects of the electrical grid and fuel consumption, but we often ignore the context in which all of this incredible energy expenditure arose. And that's what her book does really well. So I read it a, a few months ago. I'm probably going to skim through it again before uh, we interview her, uh, but it's definitely something to look forward to here in the coming weeks. There is a world before electricity? Apparently, a world before the internet. Amazing. So like Justin said before, we were talking about a book club idea. If this is something you think is great, let us know. We have an email address, podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. We have a website, www.extraenvironmentalist.com. And Justin, what is the uh, phone number for people to call in and leave us a voicemail? Well, we would love to have you call in and tell us a story or leave us some feedback, tell us how inarticulate we are in compared to uh, Helena's incredible linguistic abilities. 
you can do that at plus one nine one nine seven oh one XTRA. What does the XTRA stand for, Seth? It stands for nine eight seven two, Justin. Wow, nine eight seven two. Well I thought it, it stood for extra environmentalist, but that oh, works too. Yeah. it does. It yes. does. Yes. Anyway, thank you for enjoying another great extra environmentalist podcast. May the force be with you. Hmm? Shoot some heroin and fuck with the stars You men the island and the cocaine and the elephant parts Hello, Seth and Justin. This is Alex Jones calling from Austin, Texas. I really appreciate everything you've been doing with the show. And I just want to say that they are out there listening, and they can hear what you're doing. And it scares them. It scares them a lot. We have to stand up to them. We never hope to take back this country. So avoid the FEMA camps, and I'll keep listening. And, and we're back, back with, with Helena, Helena Norberg Hodge and, and her film, film The, the Economics of Happiness. <laughs> All right, let's just... That was pretty happy. Let's go back.